All right, let's bow for prayer, and then we're going to start with uh, the second chapter of Luke's Gospel. Father, thank you for this uh, beautiful day. Thank you for the joy of uh, being a Christ follower. Thank you that today we get the uh, delight in uh, the story of Christmas once again. And uh, Father, I thank you for all who are watching and listening. Pray your blessing upon each one. Thank you for keeping us strong and healthy. Continue to watch over us and protect us, protect our community. And I pray that all we say and do will bring glory and honor to your name. Give us unusual insight into your word today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you. I'm glad to see you. I really have no idea who all is there because um, I think there are three pages of you. And I'm almost afraid to touch a button now that something might go wrong. So I'm just going to talk. And we're in Luke chapter 2, the birth of Jesus. So let me say, um, first of all, a couple of uh, words, big words that start with an I. And the first is incarnation. We're going to read in a moment about the incarnation. And the word incarnation comes from Latin. And the Latin word means to enter into or become flesh. To enter into or become flesh. Uh, You'll remember one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture in in all the Bible is Philippians chapter 2, which speaks to us about the incarnation when it says, in your relationships with one another, let have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality of God something to be grasped, Brother, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being a found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So we're looking today at the incarnation, God becoming flesh in the person of uh, of Jesus Now, there's another word that I wanted to say to you, and that's the word Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Some people spell that with an I. Some people spell that with an E. Both are just fine, whichever suits you. Emmanuel, and it literally means God with us. God with us. Perhaps you remember the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, who wrote hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. In the seventh chapter and the 14th verse, he said, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And then you come to Matthew's gospel, the very first chapter, beginning with verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. We just read that. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then Joseph woke up, and he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife, that he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now. Uh, God loves the people that he created. That's us. God loves the people that he created so much that he devised a plan to save us from the mess 
that we are in and the mess that we have created by our own sin. The plan called for the creator himself to become a man. He exited in eternity and stepped into time. He exited eternity and stepped into time as a helpless baby. So I'm going to read now from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. You may not have read this since December, but we'll familiarize ourselves with it once again. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came uh, The time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Don't you just love that story? It never grows old. Every time I read it, it is thrilling. And, of course, it brings me to Christmas, thoughts of Christmas past, thinking of family events and of a child of my childhood and then uh, of adulthood and our own children and now grandchildren. So Christmas is very special, I think, to all of us. And simply reading the story from Luke chapter two uh, thrills our hearts. So as we look at this passage right off the bat in verse one, we see a name and the name is Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus. Some of you who've been with us all the way from the beginning in Luke, remember that we, on your outline early on, there was a list of um, of the Caesars, Roman emperors. And if you still have that, you might look at it soon, and you'll find there the name of Caesar Augustus, who ruled uh, from about 27 B.C. until 14 A.D., so he had a very lengthy uh, reign. And he is the Caesar or the emperor who triggered the change in the Roman Empire from being the Roman Republic to becoming the Roman Empire. Now, because we live in a republic, that word is very favorable to us. We appreciate our form of government. We are a republic. And so when we think of the Roman Republic, then it stirs good thoughts in our heart. And we realize that a lot of the principles uh, that our founding fathers put into place uh, came from principles that governed Rome in the days of the Roman Republic. However, in Rome, things changed dramatically when she went from being a republic to being an empire. And we don't have time, nor probably even the desire, to go into all of those changes But needless to say, most of them, as far as governance are concerned, were negative and were in the long run harmful 
to the people, but as you might guess, very profitable to the Caesars. Now, Caesar Augustus, again, ruled from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D., so obviously his reign encompasses a lot of significant events, but most important to us would be the birth uh, of Jesus. The word Augustus means supreme ruler, so that tells you something right there. Uh, When he was born, his mother did not name him Augustus. That is a name that he assumed. And the word means supreme ruler. And about 12 BC, 13 or so years after he had come into his position uh, of authority, Caesar Augustus took another step that was harmful to the people, but profitable to him. And that was that Caesar Augustus claimed for himself divinity. Divinity. In other words, he claimed to be a god. And particularly, Caesar Augustus claimed to be the son of a god. And who was his father? None other than Julius Caesar himself. Now, Caesar Augustus was an adopted child. Uh, But he was the son of Julius Caesar, and uh, he claimed divinity for Julius Caesar, and therefore claimed divinity for himself as the son of a god. So that gives you a little background on Caesar Augustus and how he regarded himself very highly, obviously. Now, sometimes we hear the term, associated with the Roman Empire, Pax Romana. Now, if you are not certain how to spell that, it would be P-A-X, which in Latin means peace, and Romana, which would be R-O-M-A-N-A, and you know that means Rome or of Rome. So it would be the peace of Rome, Pax Romana, And uh, the peace of Rome sounds good, and it was what allowed the citizens of the empire to travel fairly safely and almost anywhere they wanted to go in those days, which became very important to the spread of the gospel because it meant that the apostles and other believers could travel fairly freely, go just about wherever they wanted to go, and carry the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. So that became very important, Pax Romana, but that's only because we live now and not then. If we lived then, we would realize that that term Pax Romana comes at a price, and the price would be exorbitant taxes and ruthless leadership and the Uh, the accumulating of enormous wealth on the part of the Caesars and also a, an expectation of total submission on the part of the people. In other words, there was no room for um, any thought or expression of thought that was contrary to the Caesar. So you might have Pax Romana, but it came at a significant price to individual liberty. Individual liberty was fairly non-existent in the days of Caesar Augustus. 
And so Caesar Augustus issued a, a command, an order, that there be a census. We're familiar with this passage of, of Scripture. And he required that everyone return to the town of their birth for registration during the census. Now, that wasn't as tumultuous in those days as it would be now because most people were born, lived, and died in the same place. They didn't go anywhere to live. However, that was not universally true, and we know it was not true of Joseph. And so Joseph and Mary were in Nazareth, and so they had to return to the ancestral birthplace of Joseph in order to register for the census and pay their taxes. And so that meant they had to go to Bethlehem, which was uh, quite some distance for them. Uh, for us by car today, it would be a pretty short drive, but for them walking would have been four, maybe five days journey. And uh, they're making this journey while Mary is uh, very pregnant. The baby is due almost, well, really at at any time. So let's put this in historical context for a moment for today. If we're doing a census this year, I hope everybody's already filled out your census thing and sent it in. Uh, you do it online or you can do it by paper, whatever you want to do. Um, what if today we had to go back to where we were born to register for the census? Where would you have to go? Where would you have to go? I, I know for me and for my sister, who's somewhere in, in the screen here, we'd have to go back to Atlanta. I, I wonder how many of you would say, oh, I don't have to go anywhere. I just stay in Belton. Probably, I'm guessing, a small minority of those of us who are watching today. Most of us would have to go somewhere, maybe somewhere else in Texas, maybe to another state, or for some, you'd have to go uh, out of the country. I don't know how that would work. Uh, if you're registering for an American census in another country, I, I think there has to be some exceptions made. But nevertheless, uh, think about where you'd have to go to register today if that's the way things were. Well, what Augustus didn't know was that God was orchestrating all of this. God was using a pagan, ungodly, Caesar himself claiming to be a God and uh, God, the one true living God was using Caesar Augustus to accomplish his will in order that Old Testament prophecy would be completely and perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. So isn't it amazing? We get all these historical details and, and sometimes we want to rush through them and say, well, that's not important. Yes, it is important. It's very important to all the details of the birth of the Messiah all the, the things that give us absolute total confidence in every word written in Scripture. So Augustus was used by God. And let me take this opportunity, having said that, to refer you back to Micah, the Old Testament prophet of my prophet Micah, to the fifth chapter in the second verse, for he is the one who prophesied the birthplace of the Messiah. Here's what he said. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, 
out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So that's where the prophecy comes from, Micah 5.2. And here it is being fulfilled in Luke chapter 2, and in a marvelous way, because God chose a young woman who lived in Nazareth to be the mother of his son. And if prophecy is going to be fulfilled, how is that child going to actually be born in Bethlehem when uh, Mary and Joseph would not have gone there for any other reason except that they have to register for the census and that puts them in the right place at the right time. So God is amazing and, and awesome in every detail of scripture. Now, as we look at, as we look at chapter two, verses one through seven, um, it almost in its words, it almost seems understated. Almost seems understated. I mean, it's just matter of fact, the, the way it's put. In fact, I suspect it is much more matter of fact than you were when your children were born. I suspect that uh, dads, uh, how did you relate the news to other loved ones and friends? Oh, by the way, today we we had a child. Um, Just thought I'd let you know. I doubt seriously any of you were that matter of fact. What I think was more likely true is, wow, guess what happened today? Our child was born at Scott and White Hospital or wherever, and he or she is so beautiful and healthy, and, you know, we get excited. It just seems so understated in the first seven verses. Now, not when we get to verse eight, but in the first seven verses, it just seems like it's just kind of matter of fact. And, and I'm asking myself the question, where's the orchestra? Where's the band? Oh, well, just hold on. They're coming. <laughs> the orchestra, the band, the choir is coming, and we'll see them when we get to verse 8. Well, there's no question but that the birth of Jesus was a lowly birth, wasn't it? Two things about that. Two things about his lowly birth. Uh, first of all, Jesus is born when Israel is under Roman rule. They are an oppressed people. But there is is an invisible power behind the godless human rulers. There is an invisible power that causes Joseph to head for his hometown of Bethlehem. So the birth is lowly, but don't mistake that in any certain in, in any way. God is in control in this birth is lowly but it is magnificent now here's the second thing about this lowly birth jesus is born where no child should be born jesus is born where no child should be born how would you like it for your child or now your grandchild or your great-grandchild to be born in uh, what we might call a glorified barn um, and laid in an animal trough. Uh, I think we'd be horrified. Imagine your daughter or son or your grandson or granddaughter calling and saying, well, the baby came today and uh, 
you know what? We were we were out in the barn and we had to lay the baby in an animal trough. That's the best we could do at the moment. We'd be horrified. <laughs> We'd say, what are you doing there? Get out of, you're supposed to be in the hospital. <laughs> so the baby was born where no baby should be born. But listen carefully as I thumb forward to Luke chapter 9 and verse 58. I'll just read this, jot it down. Luke 9, 58. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. That is no place that is his. When did that begin? When he became an adult? It started in his birth in Bethlehem. And so we see the marvelous majesty of the word of God and orchestrating every detail. So with Jesus, there is humility before there is glory. Now, we talked about the arrival of the choir and the orchestra and the band. So let's read how that happened. We're going to verse 8 of chapter 2. So I want to read all the way through verse 20, okay? Are you ready? Aren't you familiar? Don't you love this passage? You remember learning it as a kid? Maybe you were in a Christmas pageant. Maybe you were the narrator. And you can remember saying, and there were shepherds living out in the fields while some of your friends came out in shepherd costumes and they were sheep. And All right, I digress. Let's get back to the matter in hand. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. That's no understatement. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they knew where the angels were coming from. They said, the Lord's told us through the heavenly host. So they hurried off. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So we'll stop there. Here's where we see the glory of the incarnation in this passage. They're shepherds in the field. Now, what that says to us uh, is this was not, December 25th, that's a man has just picked a date 
to celebrate the birth of Jesus. That is um, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with us celebrating on December 25th, but just understand it wasn't December 25th. It was likely in the springtime for the shepherds to have been out in the fields at night. It would have been springtime. If it were actually December 25th, they would be in uh, caves of which there are many in that part of the world. They would have been in caves and had their sheep in there and they would have had a fire. In fact, uh, every, uh, I, every one of those caves in that part of the world today, if, if you go in it and you can go in a lot of them, uh, they'll be, uh, the roofs of the cave will be black where fires have been built beneath and the smoke has risen for years and years and years and years and years. And so you'll see the black on the, on the roof of the cave. So for whatever it's worth, Jesus' actual birth was probably likely in the springtime of the year. Now, as far as shepherds go, um, they were considered to be the lowly of the lowly of the lowly, not well regarded in uh, Jewish society. They were considered to be ceremonially unclean because of the work they had to do with sheep. And so being ceremonially unclean, they were not allowed to observe Israel's um, ceremonies and celebrations. They were considered to be not very smart, although I reject that. I don't think ignorance was a requirement to be a shepherd. But society looked on them and considered them to not be very smart. If you were smart, why are you a shepherd? And that's an insult to the shepherds. But just to say all that, to say shepherds were not highly regarded in Israel. And yet, isn't it amazing that they are the first to hear? And they have the privilege of being first, other than Mary and Joseph to see the baby Jesus. Is there a message there somewhere? I, I, I think there is. We're being told right off the bat, God's ways are not our ways. And, you know, if we were writing the story, um, we probably would have had uh, Jesus born in a world-famous hospital in total cleanliness with the greatest doctors in the world, the greatest nurses in the world surrounding him. And the first to hear the news would have been the wealthy and the well-to-do and the intelligentsia of society. Because that's just the way people think. Not so with God. The first, his birth is lowly and the first to hear are shepherds. And what a way they hear, beginning in verse 9, where an angel, one angel to start with, one angel appears, and the angel says, do not be afraid. Now, angels say that a lot. Have you noticed that in Scripture? Angels say frequently, do not be afraid. Why is that? Uh, here's the reason why. Now, let me let you in know on a secret. Everybody lean forward, listen real carefully. Why do angels so often say, do not be afraid? Here's the reason. Are you listening? You can tell your friends this. You learned something today. If you see an angel, you're going to be scared to death. Now, there in that, there you go. 
your, your key to take home today, if you see an angel, you're going to be scared to death. And they were scared to death at seeing this, this messenger, this, this angel. And so the angel had to put their, put their hearts and minds at ease. I don't know if they fell down on the ground and their heads down. I don't know if some of them started running. I, I don't, you know, we don't know every detail of the moment, but we know they were scared. And the angel says, don't, don't be afraid. I've got some good news. Don't be afraid. Now in verse 10, it, it says, the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. Hmm. Okay. What English word? Uh, stands for good news. Gospel. Yeah, gospel. And in the, uh, in the Greek, it's evangelion. We get our word evangelist or evangelism from, from that word. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Now, verse 11 is significant because in this verse, we find Three titles for Jesus all together in one verse right after he was born. So here they are. Verse 11. Look at it carefully. Today in the town of David, that's Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, and he is the Lord. So there you go. Three titles of Jesus pronounced by the angel in one verse, and they are Savior, Messiah, Lord. He will save his people from their sins. Therefore, he's called Savior. He is the promised one of Israel, therefore Messiah, and he is God. He is maker of all. He is creator. He is ruler of all. Therefore, he is Lord. We sing, he is Lord, he is Lord. He is risen from the grave, he is Lord. And the angels pronounced it right here. First time been pronounced after his birth. He is Savior, Messiah, and Lord. He's God. So the angel gives the shepherds the gospel and the true identity of Jesus right off the bat. Jesus has just been born in Bethlehem, just a short distance from where the shepherds are. Um, some of you have been there to Israel, and you know you've probably been to the shepherds' fields. And it's just a, it's a short distance from the city and where Jesus was born. So it would not have taken the shepherds very long to get there. And so the angel tells him, here's how you're going to find him in, in verse 12. Here's how you're going to find him. Now we'd say, oh my goodness, how are they going to find the baby? Well, Bethlehem's not very big. It wasn't very big then. Still not very big, but it was certainly not very big then. And so you get to town and you're going to, you're going to be able to find him. And here's how you will know that it's him. You're going to find him in a manger, an animal trough. Um, not many kids that night laying in an a animal trough, so, but there is one, and his name is Jesus, and you're going to find him wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. So that's how to find him. Now, before the shepherds can react 
suddenly, verse 13, a great company of the heavenly host appeared. So angels everywhere. I don't know what a great company of the heavenly host means numerically. But I just know there, there, there were, it, there were enough. <laughs> there were enough for them to be absolutely in awe and for them to sing beautifully. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Have you ever wondered what it sounded like? Maybe in glory we can ask God to give us a little snippet of that. Or maybe that will be a song that we will be singing ourselves around the throne. I believe that to be true. So in verse 14, they sing. There's a Christmas song that I love that I think about with this verse, and that's Hark the Herald Angels Sing. One of my favorites. In fact, maybe, maybe my absolute favorite. But I love that song, and I think of it when we look at verse 14. Then in verse 15 and 16, the angels leave and they go back to heaven. And so what do the shepherds do? Um, they do what you would think they would have done. And that is, let's go. Let's go to Bethlehem and let's see this thing that has happened that the Lord has told us about, that the Lord through his heavenly host has told us about. Let's go see the baby. And so they do. They go, they find the baby. Now, what did they do other than look at the baby? We don't know. Um, I, I'm assuming that there's some form of worship. Um, do they get on their knees? Do they pray? Do they, I, I don't know. We, we don't know. It just tells us what we need to know. But I'm going to assume it was not just a reaction of, oh, well, look, there's a baby. There's a lot more than that. And the reason we know there's more than that is because of what they do after they've seen the baby. So what is it that they do? Well, in verse 16 and 17, they go away and they become evangelists. They become the first evangelists. They go and they spread the word, according to verse 17, they go and they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. So here are, here we go. Here are our first post-birth of Jesus evangelists. An unlikely crew. The shepherds. You know, if there had been a First Baptist Church of Bethlehem at that time, it is highly unlikely that the esteemed, distinguished pastor would have invited a shepherd to fill the pulpit. But these shepherds are the first evangelists. Well before there was ever a church in Bethlehem, and they go and they begin to tell what they've seen and what they've heard. And what's the reaction? Is it like, oh, give us a break. Oh, come on. What's with you got? Nope. Look at how God moves. Look at verse 18. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. Who's in control here? God. God's in control. And we know that because already the spirit of the living God is moving in those who hear the proclamation of the birth of God's son. Now, you get to verse 19. 
it says, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Let me ask a question. Who's the author of Luke? Luke, Dr. Luke. How does he know that? He wasn't there. How does he know? How does he know what Mary was thinking? Because she told him, remember, Dr. Luke, if you were with us the first week from the beginning, this is this is a well-researched document. Luke talked with many, many people in the putting together of the Gospel of Luke, led by the Holy Spirit to know what to include and how to say it. But without question, Mary, the mother of Jesus, told him. Here's what he was asking her about it. And she said, I, I pondered all of these things. I treasured up all of these things in my heart. Well, we come to verse 20. And finally, they, you know, they got to go back to work. They got to go back to their responsibilities. So the shepherds returned. But as they were returning, what were they doing? Glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen just as they had been told. I love the story. Absolutely love the story of the birth of Jesus and everything that was part of the magnificence of his lowly birth. Now, um, the shepherds are excited and they tell everybody they can see. And I'm guessing that that was not a one night deal. I have a feeling that these shepherds talked about this for a long, long time. You know, there's so many little details that are rich that I'd love, that I'm looking forward to find out. For instance, how many of these shepherds live long enough to see Jesus become a man and begin to proclaim that he's the Messiah and eventually crucified and risen? How many of these shepherds live that long? Well, I suspect quite a few of them. Um, you know, we're talking 30 years down the road and a shepherd, if a shepherd's 25, then he's a middle-aged man when Jesus was crucified. Even if he was an older guy in the fields at that time, you know, he still might well have lived in his seventies and and been alive. Did they follow? Did they remember this is the one we saw in Bethlehem? You know, I don't know. I don't know. Those are the kind of things that intrigue me. And I think when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask, but will I? Will you? I don't know. I don't know. What I do know we're going to do, because the scripture tells us, is we're going to worship. And we may be so consumed with the worship of the Savior that I'll forget about all those questions that shepherds and that we'll be worshiping God and serving him. Because remember, we've talked about this so many times. The two things from scripture that we know we'll do in heaven, worship and work, worship and serve. Those are the two things we know we'll do. Anything else? I don't know, but we know we'll do those two things. So the birth of Jesus is absolutely marvelous. Now, let me, um, let me briefly move into the next passage and then we'll, we'll start there next week. Okay. So you don't have to wear Christmas clothes next week. We're, we're past the Christmas story now and we're, we're moving on. Let's begin to think about baby Jesus at the temple. 
what we know about Jesus' early years are all found here in Luke chapter 2. Again, you and I have a, we have inquisitive minds, and there's so many things about Jesus growing up years that we'd love to know, um, but we, we don't know. But what we do know is found right here in this passage. And there are three scenes in Luke chapter 2, beginning here, three scenes in, in the rest of the chapter. The first scene is found in verse 21, and it is the circumcision of Jesus when he was eight days old. All right, that's scene number one, one verse, 21, the circumcision of Jesus and the announcement of his name when he's eight days old. All right, the second scene is a bit more uh, lengthy. It goes verses 22 to 40, and it is when Jesus is about one month old. And so they take him to the temple, and there's a reason for that, as we will see in a moment. Then the third scene is found in verses 41 to 52. And in this scene, Jesus is a 12-year-old boy, 12-year-old boy in Jerusalem with his mom and dad until they leave and he stays. And, and so you know that story. We'll get to that next time. So those are the three scenes in chapter 2, and they tell us what we know about Jesus growing up years. So in, uh, uh, let me cover the first one, then we'll stop. Verse 21, he goes to be circumcised. Jewish boys were circumcised on the eighth day of their lives. If Jesus is to be accepted by his, by, by family members beyond his, beyond Mary and Joseph, and by his people, he must be circumcised. It's a sign of the covenant. It's a sign of the covenant between God and Israel. Now, I don't want to be very graphic here. Just think about this. This is a sign of the covenant for the Jewish boys to be circumcised. So listen, every day of their lives, there will be numerous times every day that a male Israelite child sees a visual reminder that God has a claim on his life. So you get the picture? You you know, I don't have to be more graphic than that, do I? Every day that male Israeli child sees, male child sees a visual reminder, I belong to God, he has a claim on my life. And it also it it, uh, applies to the intimacy of that male child that is supposed to be only with his wife. So you get the picture. But even something more important occurs there, at least in our thinking, it's it's more important, because this is the moment in which Mary and Joseph announced the name of the baby, formally, for all time, legally, here's the name of our child, the scribes are ready to record it. Here's another baby boy coming to be circumcised. Let's get his name, mom and dad, Mary and Joseph. What's his name? And what name did Joseph give them? His name is Jesus, Yeshua. Jesus, Greek, Yeshua, the Hebrew name, Joshua, meaning Jehovah is salvation. And this is a simple act of obedience 
to God's directive because, remember, Joseph was commanded in his dream. He's commanded, Matthew one twenty four name the child Jesus. So Joseph is obedient. So that's scene number one from the youth of Jesus is circumcision. And next Wednesday, we'll pick up with verse 22 and see Jesus in scene number two as a one-month-old and then following to verse 41 through the end of the chapter as a 12-year-old. Okay? So we'll stop there for today.